Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Um, if you're right now going, he looks kind of familiar. I'm up here. I'm here about two or three times a year, and so it's really nice to be back with you. My name is Dave Henry, and uh, it's good to be with you. And it's it's good to be with you actually in the midst of this sermon series. Also, uh, the title of the series is called "The Core." And uh, I love that. Um, I didn't name it, so I get to brag on it. Um, I, I love it. I really do. It, uh, it's one of those no-nonsense kind of titles where you can look at it and say, you know what, the heart of the matter, the core of the matter. And so for all you no-nonsense kind of people, you can really embrace that and say, you know, what, what is it that's at the heart um, of each of these uh, Gospels. And so it's been good. And uh, I live in Salina. I don't live here. Uh, but I've been able over the last several weeks, I've been listening to all the sermons and, and uh, just moving along through this series with you. Um, a while back, uh, Devin emailed me and, and asked me if I'd be willing to come on this day and uh, preach a series, sermon in the series. And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, in the email, um, he said, uh, why don't you do Gospel of John? And I, and I literally thought, why would you give me the best one? I mean, it's, it, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like honored. I thought this is amazing. And, and I love Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But, but what's so great about it is John is so distinct. It's so different than the other Gospels. And so I'm able to really just, just walk you through some things and just show you what John is trying to show us, trying to, to help us to understand. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, Devin introduced you to the, to, if you didn't know the word synoptic, he used the word the synoptic gospels. And he said, when I say that, I mean the gospels, gospels that are the same. And he took you through and said, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and they're all the same. And if you were to take those three gospels and just lay them side by side by side, you'd be able to look at them and see the, the flow of the storytelling and which events are in there and, and details. And they're, um, they're remarkably similar. And each of those gospel writers had a, an audience in mind and, and they were telling the story of Jesus and they were definitely leaning in on each other to make sure that they were you know, using similar material and telling the same story. And so that's what makes them synoptic. It's telling the same story, the same kind of way. The gospel of John is telling us the same story about who Jesus is, the same reality about who Jesus is, but he's going about it totally differently. That's why it's not a synoptic. He's going about it in a way where he has something in mind and he wants his audience to understand something very particular. He has a particular person in mind, a particular audience in mind, and a very specific message in mind. So in keeping form with what we've been doing here for the last several weeks, I want you to watch about a minute and a half video here from the Bible Project, and it'll introduce you to the Gospel of John. The Gospel According to John. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he appears many times in the story itself, and there's some debate about whether it's John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with a clear purpose that he states near the end. 
John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. So John pulls together what had been said and written about Jesus in in these uh, gospel accounts that were written prior to his, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and all kinds of accounts, all kinds of things that had been said and written and preached and, 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 and talked about, and all of these things had been said about Jesus for so long, and here's what John does. He goes, I'm going to pull it all together, and I'm going to make some really big claims. The synoptics present the story of Jesus in an amazing way. They tell us all about what Jesus did and and weave it all together. And the synoptics make claims. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke make claims for us. But John steps it up. John takes these stories that have been told and then tells other ones that he knew about that those other three gospel writers didn't include. And he goes, I want to tell you some things and I I want you to hear some things that are big. I want to make some statements that that are unique and large and statements that we have to deal with as readers. And here's what's interesting about claims. Claims have to be substantiated. I mean, you can say anything you want, right? I could stand up here right now and say I'm six foot tall. It's not true. If you walked up here, you would know that very quickly, right? A claim is just a claim unless it has something to stand on. And we go through the gospel of John and he goes, let me make a claim. And I'll make a big claim and I'm going to show you. So here's his first claim. Jesus is God. And you go as a Christian, you go, okay, but I want you to think about that for a second. This guy, Jesus, who had been preached all over the Mediterranean world in that time frame, And people were believing in him. And he was born. Matthew and Luke tell us that, right? He was born. There's a birth narrative like wise men and angels came to it and shepherds and all this. He's born and he grows up and we hear all of these events and we hear the history. And he lives a life and he does his ministry and he does miracles and he does all of these amazing things. And he dies on a cross and he resurrects. And all along, even there, even with these miracles, you can go, okay, you know what? I believe God can do those things. I believe that God could do that through the life of a person. But here's what John says. Jesus is not just simply a person. Jesus is God. That's a claim. That's a push. That's something that as a person listening to the message and listening in John's day, but also listening in our day, we really have to think about that. We really have to, to ponder the reality of that statement. Jesus is God. So listen to how he starts his gospel. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And oh, how I wish I had a voice like Morgan Freeman right there, right? (laughs) The Bible Project video said it starts with a poem. That's it. But it's an amazing claim because in those first five verses, we hear John saying, I'm going to call Jesus the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And you're like, sounds familiar, doesn't it? You think back a little bit in Scripture and you go, that sounds like Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you and just keep going through that narrative, and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 when God made everything. And here's what John says. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Now listen to the rest of this. And the Word was with God, okay? And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines, hear the light? The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And as you listen to that, and if you're thinking Genesis 1 and the creation account, you are thinking rightly. You are thinking exactly what John wants you to think, because John comes right out of the blocks, and he says, I want you to know this about Jesus. Jesus is God. Let's just lay that out there from the very beginning, and let's just deal with this claim that he is far more than we ever thought, far more than we could ever imagine, far more than we could ever even hope for, and yet that's exactly what he is. It's a huge claim. And you can look at that, and you can look at Genesis, and you can go through the Gospel of John, but you can't avoid the claim that John is making there. And then he perpetuates the claim, and this is how he does it. In the Old Testament, when God introduces himself to people, and they ask him his name, this is what the the Lord God says is his name. He says his name is Yahweh. His name is, which is translated, I am. Okay? Now, I want you to hold on to that just for a second. We hear it and we go, passive statement, right? I am this, I am, you know, these kinds of things. Just a statement of being. But that's the point. When God introduces himself, he says, I am. I am the existence. I am all things. Okay, so that's part of the way people thought in Jesus' day, because that's part of our Old Testament. They're scriptures. Listen what John does to perpetuate this idea of Jesus as God. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. And we hear it and we think, okay, these are just like metaphors, right? I am this, I am a true vine, I am a shepherd. But that's not what John is doing with it because that's not how his audience would have heard it. They would have heard those statements as the Yahweh statements. Okay, so we start off with this claim then, right? Jesus is God. And in the first five verses, he says, Jesus was never created 
He is, in fact, the creator. Not only is he, was he with God, he is God. All things were made through him, light and darkness. And he says all of this. And then all the way through the Gospel of John, he goes, let me show you. Let me keep calling him Yahweh. I am. I am. Seven times in the Gospel of John. While John's first claim is huge, his next claim is much more personal. He comes out with guns a-blazing, right? The big one. But the next one, while not so big and, and insurmountable in feel, becomes really important because it starts to become personal to us. And here's claim number two. Jesus brings life to us. And we say, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that claim. It's a good claim. It's the kind of claim I like. I don't have to try to prove that claim. I don't have to try to deal with this reality that he's saying Jesus is, in fact, God. Jesus gives us life. He brings life to us. So, we started off, and I said, for those of you who are no-nonsense kind of people, you know, you have the core, right? I'm going to speak to a different section of the, of the crowd today now. For those of you who are much more imaginative and creative, this is your part, Okay? This is what John does in this section when he talks about bringing life. He gives us images. He gives us words. And then throughout the gospel of John, he takes the words of Jesus, like a single idea, and he takes the words of Jesus and then paints a picture. And so all I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the image, and then I'm just going to read you some of these words. And as I'm doing that, let that imagery grow. Let Let your imagination run with this a little bit here. Here's our first word. Um, It's the word light. There are certain words like light that are used throughout the book that help us to really understand this idea of bringing life. Okay, It's a creative word, right? Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. John 1, you know, the the idea of the light shines in the darkness. But let's go beyond that. Let's let's let it be a really personal word here for a second. Listen to some of these occurrences. Light. 1-4. And the light was the light of men. John 1-5. The light shines in the darkness. 1-7. To bear witness about the light. 1-8. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 321, whoever does what is true comes into the light. 812, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 95, Jesus again says, I am the light of the world. 1236, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. 1246, I have come into the world as light. Light is something we take for granted and something we don't think about until we need it. Until we experience a moment when there's perceived darkness, until we have this moment where we need clarity. But do you see how this word light is a word about life? It's this word that lets us live and lets us function and lets us do. It lets us see. It lets us embrace things. It lets us be what we are made to be. This is a word that is fundamental to who, who we are and what life is, is the word light. It's the first thing God makes in Genesis 1. 
And John takes this image and says, let's just talk about life, but let's use images. Light. Here's a second image for you. Water. We find throughout the the Gospel of John um, all kinds of instances where um, stories are surrounded by water or Jesus talks about water. In John chapter 1, Jesus um, is baptized and and that event is a a water event and and there's some language around there. In John chapter 2, we have this really fascinating miracle. And this is again where John is distinct from the other Gospel writers. In John chapter 2, he starts it off and it says, this the first of Jesus' miracles in Cana of Galilee. He's the only gospel writer that tells us about this miracle. It's it's really cool. You ready? He's at a wedding um, near his hometown, just a few miles from where he grew up. And he's at this wedding and his mother is there. And um, they are having this protracted celebration. Weddings went on for a while. Okay, So they're having this big celebration. And Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, Jesus, um, they've run out of wine. Do something. And Jesus goes, what does this have to do with me? It's not yet my time. And his mother says, looks at the crowds and says, do whatever he tells you. Okay? And so Jesus looks at them and says, take these, these, these large um, jars and go fill them with water and bring them back to me. And so some people do that and they fill them with water and bring them back. And then they pour them out. He says, pour them out. And he pours them out and they're, they're wine. Okay. So we look at that and we're like, What? What is that miracle about? Why is it that none of the other gospel writers talk about that miracle that John does? But listen to what Jesus is doing here. He takes this fundamental thing to life, right? Water, like we desperately need that, all of us, every day, right? This fundamental core thing about life. And he takes it, and he takes it from something simple, water, and he turns it at just a spoken word. He turns it into something complex and wonderful for the celebration. And all the people are in awe at what this thing is. It's a strange miracle. Why would John tell us? So John chapter 3, we move on to the next chapter, and we find Jesus talking to a guy uh, with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And again, a unique John story. And he's talking to Nicodemus, and they're having this conversation And they're talking about being born again. And Nicodemus says something along the line of, how can a man be born again when he's old? And Jesus says this, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit. Water. John chapter 4, Jesus is walking through Samaria and he runs across a woman standing at a well. And they have this wonderful conversation about pumping water from the well and, and having that. And the conversation leads to this phrase, living water. John chapter 5, we run across this event of the pool of Bethesda and some miracles surrounded around that. John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. John chapter 7, there's a conversation in which Jesus uses the phrase, rivers of living water. John chapter 13, he's washing his disciples' feet. And in John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he has just died. And a soldier takes a sword and takes it up to the side of Jesus and runs it into the side of Jesus to see if he's alive. And this is what John said, blood and water flowed. And you go through the gospel of John and you find these incredible instances of intentionality on John's part. And he's saying, let me show you something about life. And I'm going to do it by talking about light and water. And then here's our third one, bread. John chapter six, 
he feeds 5,000 with bread and fish. He goes on and has the bread of life discourse, which is this amazing thing in John chapter 6. You should really read it. And it's all about bread and Jesus being the bread of life. John chapter 13, breaking of bread at the Last Supper, which we're going to do here just in like 15 minutes or so. We're going to do that together. Or we're going to have a communion together and break bread together. And in John chapter 21, There's this account of Jesus. He's just died on the cross. He's resurrected from the dead. He's with his disciples. And it says that Jesus was sitting there with his disciples eating bread and fish. And and we just look at it. And John is not making this big claim of like Jesus is God. But he is making this claim. Jesus brings life to us. And then he paints pictures. And he chooses stories and chooses events that John knew, that John saw and heard and are real to Jesus' life. And he puts them together in a book and says, let me show you what life looks like. Well, John's second claim is more personal. His third claim lays close to our hearts. I want to take you really to to one more scripture here. It's in uh, John chapter 21. And this is a passage of scripture that honestly escaped me for a long time. It's a passage that, um, and I knew it did. It's a passage that as I would read it, it took me a while to get comfortable with what it was actually saying and to really land on something that I felt like captured the fullness of what it was saying. I want to read it for you. Um, Starting in verse 15, we find Jesus talking to Peter. And um, this is after Jesus has died on the cross and has resurrected. He's come back. It's one of the last things that the Gospel of John records for us. And it's this story. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He, Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. We read that and we think, what in the world? Why three times would you ask somebody do you love me? Because I'm, I'm going to promise you, at least for me, if I had that conversation with my wife and she asked me three times, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you really love me? I would be perplexed. I would be trying to figure out what is it that Jesus was saying. And here's John's third claim, is that Jesus' forgiveness is real. Jesus' forgiveness is real. Clear back in John chapter 1, he calls this guy by the name of Simon, Simon Peter, and Cephas. And we have all these names surrounding him. It's the same guy. But this is the image that we get of him, strong. I mean, his name means rock. And and he, 
He's strong in personality. He's strong in character. He follows Jesus immediately. We see him throughout the gospel. And he does everything big, right? Big successes, big failures. And you just see this guy, Peter, all the way through. And we get to John chapter 18. And in John chapter 18, Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to deny me. It's coming up on the time when Jesus is going to die. Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, I would never deny you. You know, just this, this incredible intention and this, this credible desire to really follow. And lo and behold, Peter does deny him in a big, glorious, obvious, public kind of way. It's huge. And everyone knows because Jesus said it would happen and then it did. And we look at this passage of Scripture and we can easily read John 21 and think of this as a rebuke. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? John even says that Peter was hurt. Did you catch it? Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him the third time. But the conversation was much deeper than Peter realized in that moment. And here it is. For every failure, there was grace. For every one of Peter's failures, for every one of Peter's sins, there was grace. There was Jesus renewing him. There was Jesus restoring him. And for every time that Peter denied Jesus, those three times on that night when he could have said, I'm a follower, for every time that he denied him those three times, Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, Peter, I forgive you. Peter, I forgive you again and again and again and again. To hear those words proclaimed to you, can you imagine? Can you imagine the need that Peter had in that moment to know that and to feel that? To hear them intended for your ears and your mind and your heart? How desperately we need to hear those same words. How desperately we need to believe that reality that Jesus' forgiveness is real. We desperately need to believe that. Failures are such an interesting thing. Failures are so interesting. Successes, we we, we finish things and we complete them and we put them away in our mind and we put them away in our life and it's a check mark and it's done. And we might look back on it, we might feel good about it, we might forget it. (laughs) Failures are different. Failures are things that oftentimes remain. They're things that we think about. They're things that we wonder about. They're things that we think, if, if I had, had only, if I hadn't done this, if I had done this, if I had. Failures are an interesting thing, and our mind keeps playing with them, and they just don't seem to go away. And this is what Jesus is doing for him in this moment. Peter, you're forgiven. Peter, you're forgiven. Peter, you are forgiven. Peter needed to hear that so desperately in that moment. And so do we. We do too. We really need to hear that. And while these claims start off really big, Jesus is God, and Jesus brings us life, it gets a little more personal. That third one is huge. Jesus' forgiveness is real. It is real. And in Jesus we find resolution for those failures. John makes these claims about Jesus that we believe in Jesus and that by believing in Him, we may experience real 
life. It's what he wants for us. That's really what he wants for us. All I did in that last statement is just reworded for you. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Here it is in John's words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Real life. It is the core of the gospel of John. He flat out says it to us. Did you catch that in verse 30? I wrote this so that you may know. And by knowing, you may believe. And that by believing, you may have life. And I'd say that's a big deal. For those of you who know Jesus... For those of you who believe in Jesus, I really want to invite you to that last part, that you may know that you have life, real life. And I think sometimes it takes a prompt by somebody, whether we know that person or not, to just nudge us a little bit, just to push us a little bit and say, you know these things, you believe these things. Now step in a little bit farther and really believe Step in a little bit farther and really believe that the thing that Scripture says about Jesus is actually true. I want to invite you to that. If you know Jesus and you believe in Jesus, I want you to invite you to that. If you're sitting here right now and you're like, you know what, I have always had questions about Jesus and I don't know what I think about Jesus, I want, you, I want to invite you to believe to the possibility that what John said is real, that what John said is true. That for 2,000 years, people have been proclaiming this message about Jesus, that it is a message that changes people and it's real. But hear it in all of its simplicity from the Gospel of John. I write these things that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. Father, we pray that as we move out of this book, uh, move out of this Gospel of John now in the next few moments, that the words that it contains are words that stay with us, that the promptings that we feel from these words remain, that they don't dissipate. And so, God, thank you for that. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Thank you for a message that plays itself out in real ways in people's lives, a message we can see. And I pray, Father, today... We are deeply affected by the gospel of John and the core of what it has to say. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.